This is Chris Shelton, and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking podcast, uh, brought to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube with the recent edition of iHeartRadio and Spotify. So very happy about that. All right, guys, uh, as you can see, I am joined by two guests this week. Uh, unusual, but great. And uh, they are Dr. Mike Merrill and Michael Wilson. And uh, so this is Mike and Mike. And uh, these guys have put together a book uh, called Why Do People Act That Way and What Can I Do About It? And um, obviously the title of that book is almost literally the theme of my channel. It has been (laughs) what I have been working on for the last seven years is trying to figure out why people act the way they do and what can we do about it. Because I am very, very interested, as most of you guys out there know, in um, trying to make the world a better place, trying to help people out, trying to do my part, and, um, and having guests on the show here who can bring some degree of interesting, enlightening, and hopefully entertaining information to you. And so on that note, uh, Mike and Mike, welcome to my show. Thank you very much. Good to be Good here. Good to be here. Awesome, guys. Um, Now, first off, there is East Coast Mike and there is West Coast Mike. So East Coast Mike is with the Y. Yes. Okay, good. And you have been a pastor for 40-odd years. You have written. You have traveled. You have gotten around. (laughs) You are not just a stand-behind-the-pulpit kind of guy. Uh, Do you want to tell the audience just real fast who you are and what you're about? I'm a constantly curious person that tries to learn everything I can in every situation. I find myself, my uh, main focal point in life is working with people, uh, giving them either a foundation to stand on or a ladder to climb higher or a hand up, depends upon what role that we have and how we're functioning in that relationship. So I can do any of those uh, particular aspects of uh, helping people on their journey. The, all the skills that I have developed, um, and I have quite a number of them I'm comfortable with, uh, have been utilized in assisting people uh, from young children to teenagers, people in their early adult life, marrieds, uh, unmarrieds, getting unmarrieds, elderly, and people who are dying. And so the full spectrum of human life is really what I do. When I started out, I was interested in clinical psychology, but the clinical structure required people to come out of life into my office, and they had to pay for their services. Somebody had to pay, and, uh, and then I would develop a, a clinical a- analysis of their situation. I found that the vast majority of people utterly hate being put in a psychological box and treated the psychoanalysis whenever somebody is talking to them, and I found that as I moved into a pastoral role, which it seems terrifying to some people, it gave me absolute freedom to do everything I do well in any setting. And I could go to where people were hurting, where they were succeeding, where they were suffering, where they were being born, where they were dying, in the jails, in the hospital, in the home. It did not matter. And I didn't need to charge anybody. So it allowed me maximum freedom in the care and development of people and a minimum amount of restriction except on me 
it really liberated the people I was working with and I could work within those confines. So that, that's kind of a picture as to who I am. Cool. Well, thank you. And then we have Michael Wilson, East Coast Mike. And, West Coast. Or, He's West. West Coast, you're East Coast. That's right. Sorry about that. I am. And so West Coast Mike, social scientist, <laughs> uh, education professional, and you have also got 25 years in professional religious work. Uh, training, crisis counseling, leadership development, also well-traveled, and also the father of five grown men or children. So what would your intro be? (laughs) I usually just say after Mike gets done, you know, um, humbly, I'm just the other guy in this (laughs) equation. (laughs) Well, all right, the other guy. Because... He's the got accolades. skills. His toolbox is different than mine. <laughs> no, Interesting. Really, the, you know, well, you know, how it, I mean, it's bad. We've known each other for 36 years, so that's ah, part of the problem. Got um, it. Opportunity. Uh, really, I'm, I'm very much a social scientist and religious stuff. I, I wrote that in a sense because help people understand, but I've been a pastor and minister for almost 25 years as well. And then made a decision. My wife and I made a decision that we needed to go in a different direction, which was great. So I went into education for almost 20 years. Probably the, the simplest thing to say is that, you know, for me, uh, I am a social scientist. I really enjoy watching people and figuring those things out. But from a standpoint of being orientation, other orientated towards people, uh, one of the things that I enjoy probably in uh, more than anything else is just helping people connect the dots in their life. And that has, that has a, when we talk about what we've developed together and Mike, you know, actually took it all and put it in a book, which has been pretty amazing. Um, but you'll see that throughout the book. You'll see that dynamic is that while we spend Really, the whole essence of what we're doing is we're trying to help people connect the dots to be able to really come to a place of understanding what is their reality. And so when you even look at the logo, what we developed, uh, why do people act that way? It's four heads. They're like a Venn diagram. And but in the middle, there's this little diamond with a little question mark that is there and it's there on purpose um, because to us, that's where reality is. But you have to be able to connect the dots across the, the different places of the complexes to be able to really understand that. And that's our goal, is we want to help people. We want people to help them grow as well as ourselves. We're challenged. Uh, one of the reasons why we enjoy doing the interviews is, is really, I mean, it's nice to get our name out there and the product out. That's great. But, but for us, it challenges us just to think better. It challenges us to to come back with new ideas and questions that come from people that that maybe we're not really quite you know clear in the way we're communicating. And then we spend a significant amount of time uh, working through those things, and it gives us better ideas to be able to help people in a better way. So we're both driven like that, um, which is a lot of fun because we tend to enjoy life and enjoy our families and and just think it's it's a lot of that fun to be able to do that and really help people. It's very fulfilling. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am, I am very curious about what you guys have put together and I know, you know, just a tiny little bit about it. I know you have uh, put together, you originally, um, Mike wrote, uh, 
have to say East Coast Mike. Um, your doctoral thesis, the five basic emotions, a new systems approach. Yes. Um, that sounds, when you say a new systems approach, that sounds very clinical psychologist-like. It does. <laughs> yes. What, um, and then this has something to do with what you've broken down and put together in your book here. What, and emotion is something I'm keenly interested in, and I'm, and I'm very interested in different people's take on it, because emotions are something that is still intensively under study, you know, when you get into psychology or neuroscience. What's your take on this, and, and what, what, how does that fit in with this? You know, what's your what's your model here? What are you guys putting out here uh, as far as when this? I got out of uh, seminary and I had a brand new minted uh, master's degree and started working in the church? I one of the skills and practices that many pastors have is pastoral counseling. So you have somebody come into the office or you meet in a restaurant or in their home and talk about matters that the client or the patient or the parishioner wants to uh, develop or solve. The problem that I found is that people used language all over the board and there was virtually no link between them. I could not help people resolve something that they didn't have language even to express. This may sound particularly strange, but for about 10 years, in all the counseling and relationships I did, I gave nearly no advice as a pastor. It was not my job to correct their lives, direct their lives, uh, guide their lives, solve their problems. I, they had had other pastors try to do that. Never works out well. So I spent about 10 years listening and keeping notes without assigning them to the individual who made a comment, whether it was a teenager or an adult or somebody who was elderly. Uh, but I noted how they worked to have language to communicate what they were feeling. And I began to realize, let's say in the area of being angry, that was the first one for me. On the page that I, I had pages and pay yellow page, uh, yellow legal pad pages. And I had all these various notes. I kept consolidating and moving the words around as I listened more and more and more. Somebody, uh, it was actually a young teenager, a girl about 13 years old, and she talked about some of her relationship with some of her friends. And she talked about being really mad at one of her friends. And then she kind of inadvertently said, you know, the next day I was just really unhappy with her. And then she did something else and I was furious. And then I sh and she began to use these words in scale. Mm -hmm. That there was an intense scale, there was a moderate scale. So I began pursuing that in the conversation. So were you ever annoyed with her? Yes, I was really annoyed last week. Um, when you get angry, is that bigger than being annoyed or smaller than being annoyed? And she was, oh, annoyed is really small. Angry is really big. So that became a pivotal conversation for me. And I began testing that theory out and then consolidating everything I was hearing into several different components. Eventually, at the end of about 9, 10, 11 years, I realized I had five pages that were loaded up with words. I didn't have any titles for them. But there were word, there were emotional words and responses that seemed to hang together. 
And I tested that theory out as people would describe their feelings. How about this word? Is that more or less? How about this idea, this feeling? Could you move to this one? And I began to see there really are patterns that virtually everyone has in common. So and this I is this did... is through. I, I'm sorry if I if I might. So this is through a practice your practice as a pastoral counselor on the East Coast, United States. Yes, and okay. I was selected by my denomination to be a, a regional director of youth ministry. So I ran camps, I ran conferences, I dealt with all the staff across my region. Um, we did uh, a full regional events for hundreds and hundreds of kids and dozens and dozens of staff. I wrote books for youth ministries and I went and trained staff and I trained them how to train others. So then they would have questions that came from their secondary training people. I don't know how to answer this. And we began to just develop ideas. Then I was selected by the denomination to be the national leader of youth programming. I was still a pastor in Western New York, but I was now the national leader of youth ministry dealing with tens of thousands of kids, thousands of staff, events that brought 4,000 teenagers together uh, and, and training people all over while I was still a pastor. Now, my job of being a pastor is to equip people to do the work of ministry, not do it for them. So I was constantly training people, releasing them to care for others. I didn't have to hold hands and you know, waltz people through the issues of their life. I trained people to do that. So that gave me freedom to do what I do best. So it was not just a single congregation of people stuck in a little town, Western New York. I traveled the world. I went to Africa, Asia, all over Europe, uh, Canada, Mexico, Central America, training, teaching, listening, hearing, writing, all of those things and consolidating that constantly into a way in which I could articulate clearly what I intuitively understood. And that was really the discipline because I could get it. I could, I could just walk into a situation and have command of the situation. I could deal with kids who were in constant trouble and they became my friends. We became allies. People would say, how do you do that? And I'd say, uh, I just have this sense you know, I just kind of have a gut feeling. Well, you, how do you teach that? You can't. So as I went through these years, I was pulling that information and coming up with ways to describe it that someone else could say, ah, I, I got that. I can do it. And now I can teach it. That to me was the critical link was not only do I understand intuitive relationships, I can now teach what I learned and we can now multiply. So we saw that happen. Hmm. Uh, so th when I did my doctorate, there, it was many years after my master's. And instead of just going on so I could be a university professor, have the degree on my wall, I spent about 25 years pulling ideas together, grappling, working with Mike, working with the other guys on our national team, the men and women, uh, running these events and constantly curious about the human condition. Right. Sorting it through. Yes. Right. Well, okay. So, and you had, and again, I want to get kind of get back to or get a more complete answer on my question about the emotional aspect of this. Because I, I definitely got your background now in terms of you've worked with a lot of people over a lot of time in a lot of places. 
So when I went to when I went for my graduate degree, my doctoral yeah. degree, they said, have some idea of what you want to work on. I said, I have a theory mm -hmm. called the five basic emotions that there's not thousands of emotions. There's only five. And I would like to do my dissertation to complete that study. And mm. they said, great, we want people to come in with some idea what they want to do. So I spent three years taking all of those random ideas and consolidating them into a systems approach on emotion. And how, does, the that, first discipline. how does that so, work? Yeah. How does that work exactly? What does that so, mean for the audience, right? Who's not familiar? Like, what does that mean? A systems exactly. approach? In the area of emotion, as I was working that discipline, my advisor for my doctoral program said, so what's your definition of emotion? How do you define emotion? I said, uh, I'll, I'll consult the experts. And he said, don't bother with the experts. Nobody agrees on what an emotion is. Exactly. And I said, what do you mean nobody agrees? He said, well, if you're Freudian, you'll take Freud's definition. If you're Rogerian, you'll take Rogers. And if you're uh, Andersonian, you'll take Anderson's. You just kind of come up with a definition, stick with it. So I tested that out with several people who are psychologists and psychiatrists. And they said, oh yeah, yeah. Everybody develops their own theory. And then you either you buy into somebody else or you come up with your own. I said, okay, I'll come up with my own. So we developed the idea in conversation that there are four complexes by which we understand reality, perceptions, emotions, motivations, and behaviors. And those are interactive. So what is emotions? Emotions are our reaction or our response to our perceptions that lead us to our motivations. It's the link between perceptions and motivations. We either react without a plan and without maturity, or we respond with a plan and with maturity. So that be, that's what emotion is. So trying to figure out, is it a spark? Is it a chemical? Is it electricity? Is it a learning process? Yeah, it's all of those. It could be any of those. Nobody, nobody's ever seen an emotion. Nobody knows exactly what happens in the brain. You can only dissect it after the person's dead. It's really unfortunate to dissect somebody's brain while they're still alive. So the challenge- You, you then, have heard of brain imaging, right? I, <laughs> I understand that, but okay. that's still, it is still a, a depiction and not the actual structures that are happening in the brain. You're right. We take some information, we create a visual display, which we invented, and then was it actually red? Was it green? Was it blue? We just made that up. So, so we, even words, attempt to take reality and put it into a way that we can transfer that between ourselves. For me, emotion is the response we have to our perceptions, leading to our motivations. That's the link. And then that's affected by everything else. Mm. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, okay. It's a working definition. It's something you can use and utilize and work. And you've got this now focused around only five basic ideas or concepts in terms of the emotional five experience. Five, five systems. emotional five. systems. Okay. And... Um, I don't know that we got a definition of systems. What are we talking about when you say systems? In the expenditure of an emotion or the, re the uh, experience of an emotion, there will be an, an, a use of energy. 
that goes into that emotion occurring and then linking perception to motivation and then behavior. The, the system aspect is that certain emotions for which almost all cultures have similar words is very low energy. They don't require you to react strongly. It's very mild. But as it grows, it will get into a more moderate uh, level at which a different level of energy is expended in feeling the emotion and then engaging the emotion from perception to motivation. And then it can grow again into an extreme passion which is highly engaging and very energy demanding to get our perceptions to move to our motivations. Well, let me give you an example. In the area that I referred to earlier, anger, eventually I titled that empowerment. That was the hardest of the five to title. But empowerment emotions at a very mild level would be feeling out of sorts or being upset or having a bad day or being grumpy. At a moderate level, it'll be anger or being mad or being competitive or being driven or uh, having a sense of determination. At an extremely high level, it will be rage or fury or violence or I totally lost it. I'm out of my mind. And the difference between rage and being annoyed and being angry is one of degree. If they're not actually different emotions. Mm. Each one then is resolved with a singular kind of purpose. What is the reason we feel anger? We want something to change. We want to get some control. We want to dominate or be uh, a master of something. In well, those, a baseball are, those game, are quite different motivations, by the way. They, they can be, but they fall into a similar line compared to the other four. Mm. They have to do with dominance and control. So we were playing a baseball game, a softball game, and my son, who's now 42, was probably 20-something at the time. And he had struck out or whiffed out, uh, blew a high ball to the right field three or four times in the game. We're behind by two runs. It's all on the line. He's up to the plate. I look at his face, and he's gripping the bat. The, the muscles in his jaw are flexing back and forth. His face is scowling. His teeth are gritted. His lips have been pursed. And he's smacking the bat on the plate. And I thought, man, does he look angry. But he's feeling competitive. What's the relationship between competition and anger? And I began to realize he wants to win. He wants to come out on top. He wants to beat that ball into the, into the stands. That's, a, that's the same thing. When your kids won't go to bed and you're sitting in your armchair and you start yelling at them, then you start screaming at them, then you start stomping your arms on the armrest, and then you finally get up and stomp up the stairs. There's an ascending scale of being angry, furious, enraged, and out of control that has to do with, I want to change the situation. I want my kids to go to bed. They're not listening to me. I want to get dominance in this situation. And I began to realize the feeling annoyed. You hear a sound in the background. Man, that's annoying. You want it to change, but you're not really willing to do a whole lot to do that. So the energy level is low. 
you want the change, but not enough to do anything about it. When you're angry, you might do something about it, but not throw your whole self into it. And when you're enraged, you throw your whole self in and it doesn't matter what you cost. It costs you because there's simply a difference in the degree of the energy being released. Right. So that's a system. That's I think, a system. Okay. I get it. I think, one of the, I think one of the things that, you know, as we, we, we talk about it in the terms of being hyper and hypo, mm-hmm. but I think what, one of the things that's really important to understand is when we look at these, so we have the five areas, we have acceptance, we have exposure, we have empowerment, we have depletion, and we have celebration. And then there is, there's a basically intensity scale that goes up and down in this whole process. But I think one of the things that we talk about um, when we begin this process is looking at emotions as neutral. Because the problem when people neutral come, meaning neither good nor bad or bad. In other words, the, that's what he the means by neutral. That it's it's not good. It's not bad. It is an emotion. Now, thus the secondary part of the book of the question is: What are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. What's it doing to me? And what am I going to do about it? Because so much of what we do in our culture is that we label emo- emotions at some level. Either they're really good or they're really bad. And automatically. Is, automatically yeah, good or bad. Or we, or we are, you know, we're in this process then that puts us in a place of, of judgment about what is happening versus starting out that says, okay, they really are neutral. They're not good. They're not bad. The real question is what do you do with anger what do you do with depression and what's it doing to you what's what's the anger doing to you you? what's it doing to you and what are you going to do about it so when what we endeavor to try and help people do is to begin to understand and put terms in into those five areas that they can describe where they are and if they understand where they are in that hierarchy of system of hypo to hyper, then obviously if you're at the top of the scale, there are things going on there emotionally to you that are going to cause some serious issues in how you deal with that. So what, what do we say? Okay, you understand that, you start backing that down, trying to understand how to get back down the scale to some degree in descriptives that we get. So we put like 40, 50 descriptives, descriptors in each one of those categories or those columns and say, let us help you learn how to move back down so that it, you're not at hyper in that relationship of your emotions, but you're able to bring balance to that. Okay. So it's however, diff- however, mm-hmm. the one vital factor just because an emotion becomes highly charged and intense does not automatically make it good or bad. Let's take the well, area of fear. Yeah. Huh? No, it, it has to but, do with wait, effect. Yeah, right. But let me, but let me explain. I understand right. that. The, the, let's take the area of exposure, which the area that includes fear, anxiety, nervousness, feeling shy, uh, being terrified. 
is, let's say at the very top end of the scale is being paranoid and terrified. Very, very, very intense. Is that a good emotion or a bad emotion? Most people would say that's a bad emotion. If you're in downtown Syria and ISIS is coming down the street, is being terrified going to help you right now? The answer is yes, because there is a real reason to be terrified. Mm -hmm. There is a real reason. Mm -hmm. If you're asked to get on stage and recite a poem of 12 lines and you're terrified, you may say, now being terrified is bad for me. Mm -hmm. So it is not necessarily that terror is automatically bad or automatically good. The two key questions are, what's it doing to you? And what will you do with it? So if you say, my terror as a performer makes me so focused on the lines and what I'm doing, I am, I am energized by my stage fright, by my butterflies, by my anxiety. Other people may say, my mouth goes dry, I can't speak, I forget my lines. Okay, so for one of you, it's actually good. And for the other, it's actually bad. Now, if it's good, let's utilize that. If it's bad, let's deal with it. But instead of saying automatically anger is bad, mm -hmm. I talked with a woman at great length and she said, I never get angry. I said, oh, I know that line. I never get angry. I get even. She said, no, I never get angry. I said, you never get angry. She goes, no, I, I never get angry. I said, why? She goes, because I'm not allowed to. I said, well, that's interesting. Why are you not allowed to? My mother told me Christians never get angry. Anger is bad. And I said, Jesus got angry and she could not wrap her head around that. So I showed her in the Bible where Jesus gets angry and she said, oh, that's just righteous indignation. I said, okay, let's call it that. And the problem was I, I didn't want to help her deal with the anger. She, she was eating herself alive. She just wouldn't call it anger. The reality was she had this immense deep ocean of rage that she just placidly covered over and pretended like it didn't exist mm -hmm. because of the message in her mind. Anger is automatically bad. Right. It's not automatically bad. It's also not automatically good. I've met very angry people who say, hey, my life is rage. Just I mean, I'm just an angry guy. And that's what makes everything make sense to me. OK, so anger is always good for you. Well, it's destroying him. He's eating his insides out. So it's neither good nor bad, even intense or mild. There were a couple of girls in my city here that went out on the west east end of city of Rochester and they were absconded, thrown into a van and and damaged seriously. And in the investigation, it was like we just didn't think anything was going to happen. How could you go to the east end of Rochester and not think something's going to happen? Didn't you have any fear, any hesitation, any sense that you were in danger? No, no. We were just having a good old time. So feeling really safe may not necessarily be the best option here. Maybe move your anxiety level up a little bit so you're aware, you're cautious. You don't have to be terrified. Just be alert. That's a feeling of exposure at a mild level, but it's not, I feel totally safe. 
So it's the emotion itself is neutral. What it does to you and what you do with it, that's where good and bad come in. Fair enough. So you're basically talking about, you know, the appropriateness of the context of the situation as to whether the emotion, the value scale as of the emotion. As I perceive it. That, right. See, that becomes the key because if I, I'm the one in my reality, so I have to be able to understand reality and my part in it, and you can't do that for me. A counselor can't do that for me. For me to say, Oh, so your dad creeps around your hallway and it makes you really nervous. Don't worry about that. I know your daddy's a nice guy. I can't say that. What I want to discover is what's it doing to you? Why does it do that? What do you do with that? Let's begin to explore what's going on here. How do you see reality and your part in it? That's a very different question than I'm going to solve your problems. Oh, well, I agree with you. Um, huh. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. You mentioned empowerment, for example, as you know, I, I just just these little things along the way here. Um, anger, um, domination, wanting to change things, wanting to control. Um, do these other emotional pieces also not have some degree of of change or demand for change or control or an attempt to control or change the environment or other people in it? I, I suppose it everything could be thrown into the same kettle of soup and then you end up with a stew that doesn't really taste like anything. The problem is if we're going to have language by which we can begin to dismantle very complicated circumstances or let's say untangle a ball of yarn that the cat got into, we have to have some means by which we agree that language starts us in a direction and then we can broaden it out from there. Mm -hmm. So we teach some basics. We go from the basics and begin to look at the interweaving that occurs. So one of the emotions is depletion, a system of depletion. Mm -hmm. uh, some people call it depression. I don't use that word because depletion really has to do with my tanks are empty. I need healing. I've got to rest. I've got to recover. Is that a change from being whipped? Yes. So there's some change there. Is there a sense of a lack of safety or security when you're totally exhausted? You don't have resources to deal with life? Well, yes. But I'm going to put the issue of safety over an exposure, and I'm going to put the need for rest and rest and, re and recovery into depletion so we can begin to talk sensibly about some basics. Now, when we need to start bleeding them over and intermingling, we can do that. That's what a tapestry does. You can look at the top and see how beautiful the, the uh, piece is. You turn it upside down, you find all the knots and all the twists. We can do both. But we start with, here's a sensible way to have five closets. Uh, uh, a criminal broke into your house went through all your closets and drawers, threw everything in the middle of the room, you walk in and here's this mountain of clothing piled high in the middle of the room. You say, oh, we're never gonna get through this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's take five closets and the menswear goes in that closet. The women's wear goes in that closet. The teenage son goes there. The teenage daughter goes there and the swimwear, whoever it is, all goes there. So 
Now we can take each piece in a fairly simple procedure and say, belongs in men's clothes, belongs in swimwear, belongs in mom's closet. Now we can sort them out when they seem to be impossibly interwoven and intermixed with no words, no names, no titles. Now we have five closets. We can put them away. We can sort it later. We can clean what needs to be cleaned, but at least it's in the right closet. That's what we try to do. Okay. And this is a system that's meant for, well, this is just something you developed in ter- for use at a, at a church level? What my assignment was for my doctoral degree was to train 30 individuals, men, women, teenagers, people across the age spectrum above the age of about 14 in how to do what I call coffee cup counseling. Coffee cup counseling is you're sitting with a neighbor, you're sitting with a family member and they have an issue they want to deal with, but they don't want to go for counseling. They don't want to get psychoanalyzed. They don't want to take medication. They just want to work through some things often those are the folks that flood into pastor's offices, take up all your time. They really never want to solve anything. They just, all they want to do is talk. They want to have somebody who will listen well. So perhaps the one skill that I actually taught was how to listen well with a framework so that you could take a statement someone makes and say, how do you understand that? Let me give you some ideas that might work for you. And so I trained 30 people. My counseling load as a pastor went from several dozen people in the span of a month, intense situations to zero because it was all being done by people who knew how to listen and how to share some basic ideas. So I trained 30 people how to do that. We began then teaching our national staff. We began teaching people all over how to do that. And we found when with a reasonable amount of, of training, not years and years and years, an average person can say, I have a handle on that. I can see the five closets. I can see the five toolboxes. I can see the five pieces of machinery. I mean, picking it, I can see the five kettles on the stove. doesn't matter how you describe it. And, and when somebody starts using language, it has to do with loving, acceptance, addiction, that kind of thing. I know which pot that goes in. And when they start talking about being afraid or shy or nervous or anxious, I know which pot that goes in. And when they start talking about happy and generous and outgoing and party, I know which pot that goes in. So now when it gets to the point, if they're fine, well, you don't have to solve anything. It's when it becomes impacted and difficult. And they say, I don't know what, I don't even know what I'm feeling. I, I, I left my kids at home and I walked in and my daughter who's 14 and her boyfriend are both naked on the couch. I lost it. I just told her, well, what do you do with that? I don't know what to do with it. I'm just like out of my mind. Well, now we have something that has to be resolved or destruction is going to take place. So if we don't find a means to give that person the tools to unravel something really complicated and understand its pieces they're going to lose it. The family's going to be destroyed. Violence can happen that everyone regrets later when they call me or one of my trained people in, they say, okay, all right. I, I understand that now I can use that. So this is sort of a, a, a system or methodology that people can use in a counseling type situation or casual or casually. Well, here's what I'm wondering, like, like, for example, you have this situation where um, 
you know, the mom or the dad walks in the room and there's the two 14-year-olds naked on the couch, right? And they're ready to, they're fit to be tied, right? Like, oh my God, here it is. I'm now f- confronted with this situation. It's overwhelming me emotionally. You know, do are you trying to deal with the in-the-moment emotion there to give the person, when you say toolbox or tool set that they can use to deal with this, is it in the moment there or oh my God, this is like freaking me out. I'm about ready to kill these guys. Then they call you and then you're talking to them and then the tool set comes into play. Like at what, at what point does this? It's both and not either about? or. Yeah, it has to do with how did we get here? How did, as mm-hmm. a family, how did we get yeah. here? What goes into this? What's happening right now, this split second? What am I going to do with this in the next day, couple of weeks? several months. How am I going to, so we teach the tools that allow a person to experience their life well without necessarily coming in for a clinical session. Mm. There is a place for clinical work. I absolutely understand. Oh yeah. I can do that. Yeah. We'll get to that. I definitely was going to ask you about that, but But, but in the the moment right there, what do you advise that person do rather than go to the kitchen, get a knife and kill both these kids? What if they understand, if they understand how to, what is going on at this point, if they understand this, the, where they are, if it's, if it's under exposure or it's under empowerment, if they can, if we can teach them, basically give them those tools their first response isn't just one to act. Their response is to take at least, I mean, takes no time at all if you understand how what's happening here for you to be able to go, okay, this is where I am and it's not good. The intensity level is off the chart. We don't want to, we are practitioners. We're facilitators. We don't come to people with this and saying, look, we're, this is, you know, this is, a, this is about living normal life that so many times people don't know what to do. They don't know how to respond because they don't have any language or tools to be able to respond with. They just are responding. Mm -hmm. And then they don't can't understand why they're struggling so badly with their feelings and in what's happening. I'll give you a classic one. Let's move it off of the two naked teenagers, but let's, let's go to, Let's go to a classic one because American culture does not get this. We do not know how to grieve and we don't know how to let people grieve and we don't know how to be able to help people grieve because we don't know how to deal with our own emotions, our own frameworks within what's going on inside of us. And so consequently, when, when that happens, what do people do? They get into denial. They get into hiding. They get into uh, moving away from relationships because every time you walk in the room and you see the person and you see their kids, you're, you don't know what to do with it. It makes you feel really sad. It makes you become very depleted. You don't like those feelings or you become very fearful because you think you're going to say something stupid and you don't know what to do with that. If we can give people some of these kinds of tools and handles out of those boxes to know, okay, this is in this closet or this toolbox. I get that. This is the emotion I'm feeling. Now 
I've got something to work with versus I just, I don't know what to do. And so I just, what we call in later on in behaviors, when you look at, you know, perceptions, emotions, motivations, and Mike didn't say anything about the last one, which is behaviors. We say you do one of two things in behaviors, you engage or you disengage. So what do people do when they don't have any tools? Most likely they're going to disengage and they're going to just totally move away or they're going to do this. They're going to put their hands out of stay away from me. I don't want you in because I've been hurt and I don't know what to do with that hurt. I've never been able to figure out how that's impacting me. And I have this intensity, but I don't know what to do with that because no one's ever helped me understand how to describe that and how to get that on top of the table. It's an amazing thing as we, as people who live, you know, we're designed for community. And when we don't allow ourselves to get things out on top of the table, to be able just to have the coffee kinds of conversations, which are powerful. I have them virtually daily in my house with people. And it's amazing what happens in that small time of that small fragment of time when you look at their life of that week, when you're able to help them put some descriptors to where they are emotionally of, of what's happening, it's amazing to see what happens when that gets on the table and now they have something to, to work with. I think that's, that's our goal. Our goal is not for people to call us. Our goal is not for them to go to somebody who has the toolbox. We want the tools out of the toolbox. We want to teach you how to do that. So it's pretty fascinating um, when you start seeing the freedom that happens when you actually give them those types of tools. And when I started earlier saying, you know, that's what I do in life is to help people connect the dots. And that is exactly what we're trying to do with this so that people are able to deal with the own issues that are going on and be really helpful to them. It's very pragmatic. It's very much facilitating. Um, it's not really clinical. It, it's, what we, it's what we know. Hey everyone, I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to you about a service that I am endorsing and that I truly, truly believe in. And that service is called BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp. And they are av available through BetterHelp.com. And this is a service that connects you with a licensed professional counselor online so you can get help with depression, anxiety, stress, or just somebody to talk to in this very, basically, very troubled times that we're living in right now. It is not easy to get out there in the big wide world right now. It is not easy to get out and see therapists or counselors. It is not easy to find counselors or therapists who can help you. And this is what BetterHelp was designed to assist you with. The simplicity of this is you go to the site, you sign up, actually you use the link <laughs> that I have provided below, uh, which is betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton, and you get signed up, and this can be for as little as $40 a week, and they actually even have uh, financial aid available. You enter some information, fill out a questionnaire about yourself, and you get hooked up with a counselor that will help you out. And this can be via text, via voice, or via a video. Okay, any one of those. It's up to you and your comfort level. 
And if the therapist that you get connected with isn't doing the job that you feel you need, you can ask for and get a different counselor. So there are a lot of options for you in this, and it is really something that I think a lot of my viewers should be taking advantage of. I have talked often about the need for or the help that you can get through professional counseling. Sometimes you need somebody who really does know what they're doing and not just a friend or family member to listen. And that's why this service is something that I am happy to put out there for you guys. So again, use the link below, betterhelp.com slash Shelton. That is in the description to this video. And I hope that you um, can get the help that you might need from this service. Let me know how it goes. To be well, to give, me, give me an example of what kind of a tool would you give or teach someone to use? Like, give me just one example of of something that might be that that you would get across one tool. To people. One tool that we have is make no assumptions. Learn how to listen and ask better questions. So, I watched my mother die when I was fifteen years old. Mm -hmm. She had cancer, and she got cancer when I was eleven. She was thirty eight. It took four years for her to turn from a healthy 140 pound mother of five to a skeleton that no one wanted to visit, touch, talk to. Even my father had not virtually nothing to do with her. He was a alcoholic and went off to a bar drinking. So I was my older brother ran away to Puerto Rico and got married. And that left me as the functional oldest child in the family with three younger than me. I became caregiver, uh, bandage changer, medicine giver tea and coffee maker, uh, vomit cleaner upper. That was my job as a 14, 13, 14, 15 year old kid. When my mother died, I was relieved. So I went to the funeral. My mother's Jewish. The rabbi came up to me and I'm this wiry, skinny kid with long red hair back then. And he said, I noticed you're not grieving for your mother. The assumption he made is a 15-year-old boy should be crying because his mother is dead. Mm -hmm. He made that assumption. Mm -hmm. So he laid the assumption on me, you're supposed to be grieving right now, sobbing, drying your eyes, hugging your family. And I was perfectly calm. And he said, uh, uh, why are you not grieving? I said, I grieved in the hospital three years ago when I knew my mother was not going to survive. You weren't there. Good I'm answer. a 15-year-old kid talking to a seasoned rabbi. That was a good answer. And he seemed affronted by that. <laughs> and he said, well, if you ever want to talk about it, you can get in touch with me. And in my mind, I, did, I had enough presence of mind not to be insulting at that moment. I would probably be more insulting now, but I wasn't then. And as he walked away, I can still see in my mind him walking away in his fancy robes, thinking I will never talk to that man ever. He does not understand. I am so happy right now. I am absolutely thrilled that my mother is out of that body. Mm -hmm. So when you have somebody who you're called in a neighbor has a terminal illness or gets kicked out of a job or any kind of a tragedy as they perceive it. You could go in saying, let me give you a hug. I know you're feeling really bad. Let me bring some Kleenex. You've made an assumption that may not be true. When my father remarried, 
my mother, stepmother had five kids. We had five kids and my father committed suicide six years later. When my brother called me at college and said, dad is dead. My wife now, my girlfriend then, she was my wife, set, started crying. She heard on the phone, your, your dad is dead. Dad is dead. And I didn't start crying. My dad was an alcoholic. He was very violent. He was a mean person when he drank. And I probably never knew him a single day without alcohol in his system. Not a single day in my lifetime. Oh, wow. So I said to my brother, who is now a medical doctor, and he was a 13-year-old kid at the time, and I said, so how did he die? And he said he sat in the garage with a car running until he suffocated. And I said, that's good. And Pam looked at me and said, what are you talking? What's good about this? And I said, he didn't kill anybody else when he died. All of us kids had concluded he's going to be driving drunk, plow into some young mom with three kids in her backseat. He's going to kill a whole bunch of people when he goes to hear he sat in the car until he died. My first thought was good for him. That's all right. So the problem is if you make assumptions about how people should be feeling, ought to feel, how they need to feel, those are words we no longer use. Need, should, ought, or must. They're out. How do you feel? How can you feel? So instead of saying that, I come in and say, so what's going on right now? My mom just died. So what's going on right now? You know, this has been exhausting for years. I am finally feeling like I can breathe. Never do we say, what's wrong with you? You should be crying. This is the time to cry right now. No, mm. it is make no assumptions. Let the person discover their reality. Don't impose your reality. Say, oh, my mother died too. And when my mother died, I was just overcome with fear. What are you bringing that in here for? This is their moment. You're trying to help them discover their reality. What's it doing to you? What are you going to do with this? That might take weeks. Right. But the reality is, if you make no assumptions and you learn how to ask good questions, we actually have a teaching package on asking better questions. We call it the question sequence. And so we can walk people through how do you process the question sequence while you're listening to people. That's a tool. That's what we do. It and, the, and what Mike said about need, should, ought, and must, when it's, it's, it's amazing when you pull those four words out of your vocabulary in asking questions. Because once you take those four words out, then you are left with have to be getting creative in the way you ask the questions instead of making statements, because we're really great at making statements. Mm. And so the tool really becomes you're putting yourself in the other person's place, not at a process level. Every, nobody likes to be processed. I mean, that's what I find all the time. And there is a, there's a great place for clinical psychology. I understand in psychiatry. I have no problem with that. Most of the time, though, what happens is that people are so afraid of allowing themselves to, uh, if you will, um, to have skin in the game, they process individuals in their conversations. And this is not about process. This is about trying to help people understand where they are in the dynamic of their emotion and to help them figure out where how are we going to pull that together to know what to do with it? But if I don't 
if I don't take the time to help them understand in what I call in that better asking questions is always thinking other orientation and the next step or two steps or even three steps ahead of them to know how to ask those questions. The art of asking questions, the real skill in asking good questions is you already know where you're trying to take somebody. And that is probably at the point in my mind, virtually all the time is about revelation of what is that core that's causing what's going on right now. And if we can get to that, if we can understand how to get to that, and we can get to that emotionally, and we can peel back the emotions enough to get to that, then we can start helping rebuild that in just putting them back in the right order and moving them in, in the right kind of closet so they're not all piled into a big pile. Uh, I use the picture, uh, you know, which I, I mean, I, I happen to be a Bugs Bunny fan, which I think is hilarious. But so many times, you know, in those goofy things, you know, they would have things where they're all out on the mountain in the snow, you know, and some somebody starts the snowball at the top of the mountain and it rolls down the mountain. And, you know, the hilarity of it is it is it's picking up steam and it's getting bigger and it's pulling everything in the world in. And, you know, by the time they get to the bottom, it's this giant snowball with houses and trees and skis and all this stuff sticking out. And I use that word picture in my own mind that says, okay, how do you deal with a snowball that's so giant like that? How do you get that sorted out? Well, you pull one thing at a time and you figure out what's the next thing that needs to be pulled out. And so you don't make assumptions this, to say, to say things that, and I, I know people mean well, but when people say things like, well, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> I'm going, you have no idea how I feel, you know, not you if they have haven't. Not, yeah, not if they haven't listened and asked about it. Yeah, first. exactly. You have no idea how I feel. Right. Um, I mean, my wife passed away. Uh, be thirteen years in September, and and I've had people tell me, you know, oh well, I, I I know how you feel, and I'm going, well, I love you, but no, you have no idea how I feel. Uh, you don't know what that's like. Right. Um, and I wouldn't. One, of, one of the myself. Mike. Let me jump in here because sure, he Mike. Mike and I have the same toolbox and we've developed these tools. We have worked on these words. We both understand them. Mike is what I would call a very empathetic uh, helper. He draws alongside and, and gets himself into that person's mindset as he begins pulling the pieces out of the snowball or sorting things out of the puzzle. This may sound very strange, but I am, as near to zero empathy as a human being can be. It's not that I don't care. It's that that's great face. I actually taught my grandson that face. The, the I reality don't use it is, often, but that was, that well, was an interesting key, the statement. The key is I make no effort to climb into somebody else's reality so that I feel or understand it. What I want them to do is own their reality and and I will provide for them the resources to be able to resolve it. So I'm almost always a clinical bystander. And Mike is, let me climb into your car and ride along with you for a while. We use the same toolboxes in two totally different ways because we're wired differently. We're twins, identical twins 
from different mothers, both born in Washington. I happen to be born in Washington, D.C. He was born in the state of Washington. But other than that, we're identical twins from different mothers. And his method is empathy. And mine is is analysis. I'm I'm analytical. Okay. And when Mike laughs at me, I feel good of the joy in the room as opposed to the sarcasm. Doesn't right. bother me a bit. Totally get it. Uh, okay. We, I have a saying very much for him is that he doesn't have mercy. He just does mercy. I do no mercy. What mercy is. Mm. You know, I do not feel mercy for There's anyone. I don't. All right. If you say so, I, 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 that's not consistent with my experience of you, but okay. Um, I won't make any assumptions about anything. I've only known you for an hour, but uh, I, I would not It is very hard. Chris, it is very hard to address our own automatic assumptions. I know that. It, it becomes I, part I'm, of training. Yeah. I, I'm curious how, to... you, how you go about training people to do that because it is something that you are it, – it's a very major hurdle to overcome to tell people to stop assuming so when, things. When I'm training somebody, if I'm training yeah. you, for example, and we walk together into a, a situation that has some issue or tension, it could be low tension, it could be high, but I'm, we're walking together, and I'm training you how to do this. As I listen to your conversation – I may even say in the moment, what assumptions are you making right now? What do you assume is happening? And I've had people that I'm training go, I'm not assuming anything. When you make this description, is that not an assumption? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I see that. How do I roll that back? I mean, we're actually in a real situation with somebody who's laughing hysterically or getting drunk or doing something dangerous. What doesn't make any difference? When when I talk to a father, go back to the situation we had similar family strife. I've had parents call me and say, I need you right now or I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. Mm -hmm. I can assume what they mean is they're angry at their child. But I've learned how to say, I have no assumptions. Tell me what you mean by lose it. Mm -hmm. Right. I am so angry at myself for letting this happen. You're angry at yourself. That's um, you're not angry at your daughter or your son. No, I'm actually ashamed. They should be ashamed, but I'm the one who is ashamed. Shame for me is an exposure. Anger for me is an empowerment. Now I have two different lines I can work on and I can start exploring how are you actually feeling? How do you separate those two? Well, their feeling of extreme shame may be when they were 14, they did something they've never ever told anyone not even their spouse and what's happening now is that seeing their own child oh it's karma it's payback i did this to her i did this to him i never told anyone now all of a sudden we're dealing with something totally different than the situation of two kids laying on the couch but if i had made assumptions i'd have ruined the entire thing the entire thing so I learn how to roll those assumptions back and hear in my own mind the question, 
What am I assuming right now that may not be true? How do I check it out? I actually ask that. That's a skill question. What am I assuming? And I've learned how to think that through. It's a skill like throwing a baseball. First time I throw it, I'm going to miss by a mile. By the time I've thrown that ball 10,000 times, I'm going to be able to hit the glove every time. So when I start the process, I'm not as skilled as I will be because it takes practice to be able to do that. That's, and, and that's okay. When you first throw, I have a three-year-old grandson. When he throws a ball, goes over my head, goes off the ground, throws right on the ground. I have a 10-year-old grandson. He can hit the glove from 40 feet with a hard ball. And for a 10-year-old kid, that's like incredible. But he's practiced. He practiced. He practiced. And this is the same right. thing. It's a skill right. you practice. Mm. What about anger management? I don't manage anger. I help people resolve it. Yeah. I, well, that's I a would form say that, of management. I would say that's but... very real. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, you guys aren't in a vacuum. You understand the situation in the country right now, right? We're extremely divided. We are, we are, um, and it's not, it's, you know, the, the, I wouldn't say, um, in my analysis of the situation that the level of disagreement is necessarily more or less, but as with your system, um, the volume of the disagreement is higher now than it has been in the past. In other words, the extremism of the anger or the the division um, is very heightened. There's 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 it's very difficult to find common ground, uh, especially on social media, uh, where it is oh you are this label therefore i'm to talk about assumptions now i know about you x y z a b c 1 2 3 i know all of these things are true about you because i know you are a conservative or i know all these things about you because you are a liberal or progressive or whatever word you want to use um, so your point on assumptions is well taken because it is something that is uh, that, that runs rampant ar- across social media are assumptions. Um, so it's a good, you know, guiding principle. Okay. What? Well, let's stop right there, though. Yeah. Let, let's stop right there. All right. I, w- I was born in 1953. When I started school at the age of four in the city of Cincinnati, I put a token in a city school bus and I rode a school bus three miles down a major highway in Cincinnati to go to school. Mm-hmm. Those were the old rounded buses that had the electric fingers that went up to the top. I loved going to the back of the bus. It's 1957, 1958. I loved going to the back of the bus and sitting in the back because it went up and down, up and down. I could fly right off my seat. After several days, the bus driver said to me, little boy, I want you to sit right here behind me. I don't want you in the back of the bus anymore. The back of the bus was all black people. Mm-hmm. The front of the bus was all white people. I thought he did it because I was having too much fun. It took me years to realize he didn't think a white kid should be sitting with the black folks. Mm-hmm. In the race riots of 1958 through 1966, the intensity of what was going on in the city of Cincinnati, in Philadelphia, in around the country was absolutely intense. From 1963 and 1974, the Vietnam War was just as divisive. 
when you get into the 80s and 90s, there are social situations that based on how people see and perceive and feel and what their motives are have become just as intense for varieties of segments of our society here in the United States. But you go to Burundi and Rwanda, they had a civil war killed 500,000 people. You go to Syria, you go to the Balkans, you go to Sarajevo, you go to South Africa. Those kinds of human situations arise in the experience of culture and history over and over and over. Right now, we're in a season, a moment that is incredibly intense. The stakes are very, very high. The people who are moderate don't express that on Facebook. They will be shamed into oblivion if they say, you know, I'm I'm thinking about uh, that yeah, right now. Exactly. So it is the extreme voices on either side that clamor for the attention and the moderate people of which there are many actually stay silent mm-hmm. in the process. Agreed. So, to hear that the country is so polar divided, okay, the loud ones are, but that may not actually represent everyone. Well, I think that this is a, I think what I'm talking about perhaps is only my experience and perhaps not. You know, you have given a, a great example there, a breakdown of how experience um, parallels in other parts of the world and under certain circumstances or similar situations. I'm referring to the fact that here in the United States, you know, families, relationships broken up over politics. This is a fairly new phenomenon as far as we know. I could be wrong about that. Maybe. You are wrong about that. Okay. I going, don't remember having Washington. arguments at Thanksgiving in 1977 over things that we now see happening in 2017 or 18 right, but, or 19. But George right? Washington so, was the only president that was universally loved by the United States. Adams and Jefferson split the country, split families, split states. Created the foundation, eventually leading to Andrew Jackson, who divided the country in half. And under Lincoln, the country went to civil war. The uh, Teddy Roosevelt did the same thing. Um, FDR, with his social programming, divided the country again. Uh, Kennedy did the same thing with the space race and the Vietnam War ascension with with uh, Lyndon Johnson. Nixon did the same thing. The reality is that those kinds of intensities don't seem as intense as right now because we're experiencing right now. But a study of history shows this has always gone on. This has would, always been the case. All right, fair agree. enough. Well, I would, I would agree to some, some extent with Mike, but I think Mike is leaving it from a, from a sociological standpoint, he's leaving a very, very large piece out of this. Mm-hmm. I agree that those, there are those intensities and we are really an intense time. We have a significant difference in how culture is run right now that is causing, that has allowed us to do something that we've never been able to do before. And that is called social media. Mm-hmm. Because we have never been able prior to the last, what, 15 years in a very short amount of time, mm-hmm. we have never been able to hide our identity at such a level to be able to live out some kind of vicarious lifestyle that really is not real, where I can get on a social media platform that is a two dimension at best 
and I can be profane and I can say whatever I want to say and I can demean whoever I want to demean. And it really has no recourse back on me because I'm not accountable for that. I can just post it, let it go into the nether air and boom, it's like dropping, you know, a, a social media bomb to do what? To get more people to respond so that I become someone who people like. And I do that from a negative standpoint because now I've got someone listening to me. Now I'm seeing my value in the fact that they actually are, uh, are actually paying attention to me. And so I get value. I mean, we all know this. We all know that, you know, kids act out. Why do they act out? They want someone to pay attention to them. They don't care if it's negative attention. They just want someone to pay attention to them. I think we have developed a generation and mindset that's allowed us very much so to go ahead and put that kind of stuff out there continually and not only put it out there, it's encouraged. Everyone now is an expert. Everyone <laughs> yeah, has. Well, there is that. I mean, what's amazing to me is I sit here and I have folks that are in the medical field and they're, they're I mean, they're, they're sharp people, okay, friends and family. And it's amazing to me as I'm sitting here and I have people who send me podcasts and send me information of these these doctors who are family practitioners who are sitting and waxing eloquently about how this all works, how infectious disease works and how all the intricacies of what goes on. And I'm going, you have no clue. You haven't been around infectious disease. You know what that looks like. And you're giving your opinion. That's nice. You've got some facts built into that because you're a medical person but you really do not understand the dynamic. And then I have some guys who show up at my house who are biologists and do research and they're going, I can't believe these people. I mean, mm -hmm. this is ridiculous because they understand the science behind it because they work in it. Exactly. But we, because we have allowed that and not only allowed that, we've encouraged that and given that platform, there is virtually no real dialogue that's taking place. It is your tribe, my tribe. And oh, by the way, the way I'm going to get people to pay attention to me is I'm really just going to, you know, I'm going to go after you. And that way, I'm going to get someone to pay attention to me. And what is that? That's ego. That's about me being able to feel like I'm somebody and which is, is pretty thin. But when people are in need of that sense of belonging, guess what they're going to do? They're going to do whatever they can to try and fill that hole because we're built for community, but social media is not community. Though we have said it is community, but the problem then is comes the very thing that you're saying is that we have this great divide that's going on and we're getting more information from, if you will, from both sides and people out there that maybe have never said anything before, but it's not, it's not real information because we're not having real dialogue. We're not, we're not able to come to any resolution. And that's what we, we really want to bring in people's lives. We want to be able to help them bring resolution to what their perceptions are and their emotions are and what, how it drives their, motiv their motivations so that they can have a quality of life that's much, much deeper. There's, than one, there's one key that's so, got to go in here, Mike, and it has to do with the way social media works. One of the assumptions that people make about social media is they're seeing the full spectrum across the board 
And what social media actually does is it filters out memes and stories that they know you will click on. They know it because of how you've done it in the past. Well, so it, filters, so it filters it down to those things and shows you those things. It, and if you they and if, and if the algorithms yeah. know you're going to get all upset about this kind of a meme with these kind of colors, that's going to show up on your feed and you go click, click, click. And they go, gotcha. So what happens is you tend to see the world in these these simplistic colors that that tend to drive emotion into greater and greater intensity, but the system, the algorithm itself is facilitating that to make the assumption, wait a minute, I'm only seeing a certain picture here that someone or some machine wants me to see because I'm going to click and they're going to get more ad revenue. Exactly. And I, and I totally agree with that. And I, and it's one of the things that, I mean, if, if we were going to have a discussion about the kinds of things that could change that could help us is that's one of the things that needs to go away so that people can actually have, could have contact across the board because it does limit it in amazing ways. It cracks me up because I, I've, I've done a bunch of tech stuff in my life. In fact, I, I used to do a lot of tech training when I was in, in the school district and, and of late it's always, I, I'm trying to Google something and it won't go past a certain level. It just keeps bringing back the same things at different angles and ways. And I just sit there and just crack up because it's like, it's the algorithms that are working in the background that won't allow me without great effort to get past that, to get to what I really need to get to. And so, so here's a great experiment. My phone is off. It just came, uh, woke up. But when my phone is off, if I talk about downhill skiing, it's not on. I'm not on the Internet. I'm not surfing anything. I just talk about downhill skiing. I'm going to see some ads for downhill skis. Yeah. It's going to pop up on my side feed. If I talk about log cabin, constructing my own log cabin, my phone is off. But it's going to hear what I talk about and it's going to feed me information. And it knows that if there are certain things that I will tend to click on, and they can put ads on about building log cabin houses. It's about the mercantile value of social media and people are being played. So you end up having um, a set of assumptions you can address even about your assumptions. <laughs> Throw well, that one no, around your mind. You're, you're not wrong. I, but I want to I want to again stress right because you said well it's pretty much same same as as it has been in history and actually everything we just talked about pretty much kind of says, no, it's not the same as it has been in history, because this is something new. We haven't had social media or the internet in history. And so this, and this has been around just long enough now that we are really seeing the negative repercussions and consequences, yeah. unintended consequences of this technology. Right. And we've talked about some of those unintended consequences in the last five minutes. So... Right. Now, my question becomes, with your, you know, points here and the, and the things you guys have put together, do you think that what you're doing could be of some benefit in that direction? Because I'm looking for solutions to a divided country. I would like to see this nation become united again. And I don't know if that's possible. I honestly don't. But it's still a goal. It's still an idea of something I'd like to see. 
And so I look for ways and means of how do we bring people together? How do we get people talking? You know, you mentioned a guiding principle, stop assuming things. That's a great one. I preach it all the time. I wish it was easy to do to get people to stop assuming things. I would like to know what other things you might offer that, you know, in this system you've put together here that might help people chill the hell out and be able to converse again. Because social media is a reality that's not going away as much as we might like it to. It's not going to. And so how do we deal with it? Mike and I meet on the phone for about six hours a week by video conference uh, to work on our seminars and how we uh, want to depict and explain and teach what we do. Mm -hmm. When we got to the end of May and George Floyd had died Mm -hmm. uh, in being murdered uh, by an individual who used power in such a way that really was horrifying to everyone in law enforcement, everyone in the country, everyone in the black community, everyone in the white community, everyone everywhere in the world, universally, we said the people who are going to be under the, the examining microscope is law enforcement. Mm-hmm. What if we took our concepts, why do people act that way and what do I do about it, and wrote a law enforcement uh, seminar? So we, began, we have begun exploring with different law enforcement agencies, could outsiders, non-blue, with credentials come in and teach blue these concepts, it's a long, long process. There's mm-hmm. way so much going on in the world, but mm-hmm. we're getting some conversations going. The answer to your question is, if we had the platform that would allow us to be able to come in as facilitators of conversation, Mike and I believe, especially as a team, his mix and my mix are very different but combined together, it's extremely strong to provide a platform for resolution. Now, we end up with pick any factor, X factor. Is that bringing about loving relationships? Well, you could say absolutely not. I just assume it's not. Let's not assume. Mm -hmm. We may have some people who really love what's going on. How in the world could they love what's going on? We can explain that. We have people who are terrified of what's going on. Little children can't sleep at night because they're terrified of something. They don't even know what there is. We can talk about that. We have people who are furious to rage and day after day after day after day, they are filled with rage with no resolution. That's where bitterness comes from. If it's not resolved, we can talk about that. Depletion, I'm exhausted, I'm overwhelmed, I'm sick to my stomach, I can't deal with this. We can talk about rest and recovery. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled with this. This is, I go to the, to the rallies, this kid who brought his gun and shot two people, he went because he was thrilled to be in the middle of the fight with the guns, like, what is wrong with you? I understand that, I don't agree with it, but I understand it. And so we can then, instead of saying automatically bad, automatically good, we can then create a dialogue if we're given the platform. I mean, that's why we're on these shows. That's why we're getting out there because we have spent 30 years crafting a way to think and process And what we want to do, I was getting ready to retire from week to week pastoral ministry. And one of my church members said, so when you retire, what are you going to do? Go putter in your garden or putter on the golf course? And he laughed. He's laughing. And I said, no, I'm going to go change the world. 
and he his laughter declined and he goes you're not laughing i said no i'm not laughing he said you're serious i said i'm serious i think we've learned some things in the last 30 40 years 50 years of being engaged in every kind of human experience across the world that we can now teach from a platform that is effective at enabling people to resolve. The question is, can we get on that platform? Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things I think that's really interesting to me is that uh, I've done one of the, one of the things I try to do in the sense of, of you asked that question, how do we come about making that happen? And I've been a I've been a systems change guy uh, and manage systems, develop systems. That was my job. I mean, for for ages. And one of the things that I mean, that's Mike and I were we work very differently. And people, most people would say, I don't know how you guys are friends. It doesn't make any sense to us. Uh, and and yet we know there's a lot of things we just don't trip over each other on. And so that and we're we're good with that. But systems is a big part of mine of how do you get to from here to there and i call it trying to take trying to figure out how the river is flowing and where the river is going and how can i keep the river clean and actually flow better not just dig a whole new channel for it because that's not what needs to happen what needs to happen is stuff needs to get out of the way so it can flow better i mean that's that's the metaphor i use i think one of the things that's happening right now that is both good and a huge challenge is the fact that you, for the first time, let's face it, how many families have had to spend huge amounts of time with each other. They have been cooped up together. That's not going to change for a while. Um, how many, org- I mean, situations where people are now, they, they're not in a group of 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 people but they're a group of five and they're meeting they're they're with that same five people every day. Problem that I see we have is a country which is now being faced was really starting to show itself is that for the last uh, probably since the late eighties, early nineties, we, we our interpersonal skills started to deteriorate something fierce. Then when we got to the true media age, they have almost become non-existent and people do not know how to have dialogue. They don't know how to understand that people work in a different kind of reality and you need to know and understand that to some, some level to be able to interact with those folks. Uh, we've lost that skill set. We've lost the skill set of dialogue. If we could just even right now for the next three, four, five months help in your world, uh, your podcast of however many people you connect with, if we could just get people to begin to look at their families, look at those relationships differently and ask very simple questions of how am I connecting here? You know, what is happening in all this time? We've, you know, we had this in what the 90s when this goofy stuff went around where people said, you know, you have to have quality time with your kids, quality time with your kids, you know, make sure you got 30 minutes a day, quality time. And I'm like, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Quality time happens out of quantity time. 
you can't just tell a kid or tell in a relationship, say to somebody, okay, well, we've got 30 minutes for quality time. Ask me all the questions you want, son, because I'm going to give you the answers to life. No, quality time happens. It's an accident that happens when you're playing baseball. It's an accident that happens when you're working on the car together. It's the accident that happens when you're doing chores around the house. It's an accident that happens, you know, you name it, put it to it, but ordinary life, but we have lost those dynamics. We don't even know. I mean, I was amazed watching as when COVID hit and watching all of the ads that came up on, uh, on TV for these, these companies that would bring you everything prepackaged in your box to make your dinner. And I'm going, don't you understand? Standing at the counter, dicing the peppers, dicing the onion with your kids standing by your side is what it takes in order for there to be relationship. But we want to short circuit all the stuff in relationship and not really, we don't know how to do it. So my point is, is to build that into, rebuild that into our society that says, look, you need to have real dialogue, but it starts at a very basic level. And one of the places it needs to start is at home. So, so Chris, you are exemplifying a principle and skill that is vital in the area of dialogue right now. Uh, By sitting here quietly listening. Exactly. And here's what here. Wait, here's what I mean. Dialogue is subverted when during someone else's conversation you are only forming your answer. You're putting the words in your mouth. You're getting ready to speak and be able to teach families, companies, churches, community groups, um, opponents. Don't formulate your next answer while the other person is speaking. Listen and then ask for permission. Give me just a moment to think that through. I want to be able to formulate my answer in response to what you said. Mm-hmm. You're demonstrate. You're listening to what we're saying without w- formulating an answer already in your mind, merely waiting for the moment to jump in and take over the conversation. We have dealt with uh, hosts for whom we're merely ancillary decorations on the wall, that person has their own agenda. They don't care what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. They just want a a springboard that will allow them to jump a little higher and show off a little more. And the very skill you're demonstrating is, as you talk about that, now I'm going to, let me work on this. That's dialogue. That is exactly dialogue. That's what Mike is saying is gone. That's right. Well, thank you very much for pointing out a model example. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Because, uh, and, you know, and I, and I will say that I have spent more than a little bit of time uh, in my life working on the subject of communication. And, uh, and I, we, we, you know, for, for those of you listening and on the podcast right now who know me and don't know my podcast guests, um, they were not familiar with my background, so I filled them in a little bit at the beginning of the show. But there was a lot of work on communication in my background. Um, I 
am keen on good communication happening. And, uh, and I think that I can agree with or find points to agree with in everything you guys have said. I, you know, there's a, there's a danger in being a podcast host sometimes in putting, having guests on a show who, you know, have put a book together or have put a subject matter together, that it comes across like, well, maybe I'm endorsing everything you guys have ever written, right, or something like that. And that's not the case. But in, the ca- in what we have talked about, I have found useful points of, uh, like you mentioned, tools or guiding principles or ideas that, that I think would be helpful for people. So I'm glad that I've, that I've had you on. I'm, uh, we're going to move toward wrapping up now, obviously, because we've been talking for a while. And I think we've covered some pretty good stuff. What do you guys think? I think it's very good. No, One it's been the... great. It's good. been great. One of the natures of dialogue and even many of the things we've talked about is the difference between efficiency and effectiveness. Mm. Dialogue is not efficient. Quality time. (laughs) Quality time is not efficient. That's a great way of putting that. That's a great way of putting that. And our goal is not to be efficient Mm -hmm. in solving the world's problems or helping a company survive or a family not split up. I'm not interested in efficiency. I am interested in effectiveness. And effectiveness sometimes takes a very, very long time. I had a friend who called me with her kitchen completely filled with smoke. And I said, why is your kitchen filled with smoke? The cake in my oven is burning. Why is the cake in your oven burning? Well, the box said 350 degrees for 45 minutes, but I didn't have 45 minutes. So I made it 700 degrees (laughs) for 25 minutes. You say, okay, that doesn't work. You cannot shorten the time and double the temperature in order to have a positive outcome. We're not interested in efficiency. We're interested in effectiveness. Right. That's good. That's good. I, the way I, <laughs> I made him laugh, Mike. No, that, that, was was, that was good. I like that one. A thousand degrees for 10 seconds. It'll be done. I swear it'll be done. You know, the point, I, just to build on what you guys were just talking about there also, I have, I have said, the way I've described that is, look, you know, there's a, you can communicate or you can pontificate. You don't get to do both, right? Correct. You're going to do one or the other. And right. I, I like to use my podcast to communicate, and I, and I hope that, that we are doing that. Uh, where do people get your book? Why do people act that way? And what can I do about it? It's on Amazon in three forms. We have a print on demand. We have an ebook and we have an audible. uh, So they can get any of the three ways there. The book is one thing. Consulting and conversations, uh, training events is another. Sometimes we train independently. A lot of times we train together. And, and that can have some expense to it, but the outcome is very, very positive for the people we work with. Cool. So how then, well, what we'll do is, why don't you guys, uh, I'll verify once we get off the air, the wink- links I have for you on the, on the websites, and I will put that in the show notes here in the description on, on YouTube Appreciate as well. Appreciate that very much. Yeah. Perfect. Definitely get that up there. Okay, guys. So, uh, folks out there, I want. Well, first off, guys, thank you very much for being on my show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. It's been great. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks. I definitely have enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I hope that you guys out there have too. 
Uh, if you have any comments, questions, feedback, whatever, leave it in the comments section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And uh, I will leave the contact information for both Mike and Mike in the description section here. So if you have questions for them directly, you will be able to reach out to them. Uh, so if you're finding this show entertaining, informative, and maybe even educational, then consider joining me on Patreon because that is what keeps the lights on and the show going and uh, definitely helps, uh, well, just helps keep everything moving right along in Chris Shelton's life. So <laughs> thank you very much for those of you out there who are supporting the show. And thank you very much for your viewership. And of course, if you have not yet subscribed to the channel, now's the time to do so. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.